0: Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery again, CHP 153 this time, the history of opium in China. I received the inspiration for this week's episode from listener and former longtime resident of Taiwan, Gavin S. He wrote to me and turned me on to a video on Blog and Heads TV that featured an interview with UCLA professor of public policy, Mark Kleiman. Professor Kleiman is someone very respected by many for the breadth of his expertise in the subject of U.S. and international drug policy. The matter of the Opium War and the well-known narrative about the causes and the outcome, the unequal treaties, and the national problem of addiction were brought up. The interviewer, who was British, even went so far as to apologize on behalf of his countrymen for Britain's role in the Opium War. Well, Professor Kleiman had said in the interview, quote, Part of the anti-colonialist rant had to do with what Britain had allegedly done to China in terms of introducing opiate addiction as a way of supporting the export trade from India, end quote. Professor Kleiman maintains that this statement was a myth, that it never existed. He didn't deny that the British used their military superiority to knock China out, but this was only in response to the Qing government's policies to push back against the growing influx of Indian opium exported by the EIC. This was in the early 1830s and 40s. Professor Kleiman pointed out that the China state-owned monopoly on opium was being directly challenged with the flood of all this cheap but higher quality imported product, mostly from British India. This impacted domestic markets that were a very nice, stable source of tax revenue for the Qing government. It was as early as 1589, towards the end of the Ming, that the government had started earning tax revenue on opium sold as a medicine. Imports were strictly banned, but not for the reason that is commonly held, that is, the moral reason. China's reaction against the foreign opium was initially about protecting the domestic market. I had to admit, I never looked at it this way before. I thought about that a while, and opened a browser, and got on the Google, and Sure enough, Professor Mark Kleiman wasn't the only one in the world saying there was more to it than the Opium War, and that China and opium went way back. We already went into quite a bit of detail about the Opium War, and not one, but at least three previous CHP episodes. I featured the Opium War in a very early podcast from almost five years ago. Not much has changed. And then we rehashed it all again in the Qing Dynasty series, and yet again in the 10-part History of Hong Kong series. Rather than squandering limited resources and capital in another dredging operation, I thought it might be worthwhile to explore the subject of opium and its long history in China up to the time of the opium war. Indeed, China's relationship with opium goes back a long way and didn't start with the East India Company. Now, before anyone accuses your humble narrator of letting these Western nations off the hook so easy, I'm not going to do that. After looking into this matter personally, I concluded Western traders and smugglers figured prominently in facilitating the proliferation of opium in China and thereby fueling the addiction. So let's take the facts and the myths of the opium war and set them aside for now and try to get a nice overview of everything else. The focus will be on the history prior to the opium war rather than all that followed. Opium has quite a long history in China, and believe it or not, from what I learned, there are more than a few similarities with tea. Tea and opium both came early to the Chinese relative to what ultimately became of both commodities. The earliest processing and quality of the product were quite crude. Both began their lives in Chinese culture as medicines. Both could be compressed into small shapes that could be carried and had intrinsic value, allowing tea and opium to be used as a quasi-currency. And when tea and opium both hit the big time in the Ming and Qing dynasties, taken together, the two went hand in hand. One, one wonderfully complemented the other. Both had ceremonies and rituals associated with them that were incorporated into social customs, and both opium and tea had their connoisseurs who only consumed the best there was. And there's more, I'm sure. Let me make the honest disclaimer and offer full disclosure. In saying I myself have never tried opium, I've been fortunate up to now in that, aside from a prescription of Tylenol with codeine that I didn't use anyway. Narcotics and I haven't had that much interaction. As far as our story goes, there's opium the medicine and opium the recreational drug. Addicts sort of got caught in between. Anyways, let's look at opium in China. As I said, they're both Yo, old friends. The history goes back a long way. The opium poppy, Papaver Somniferum, as Linnaeus officially named it in 1753, is native to the eastern Mediterranean. Ontological credit has been given to the Sumerians, who 5,400 years ago referred to the opium poppy as the herb of joy, or the joy plant. So we know for certain, as far back as 3400 BCE, at least the Sumerians knew about it. 3400 BCE. That's before Xi and the Yellow Emperor, even. That's the time of Longshan culture in China, very far back. The Sumerians passed the secrets of opium on to the Assyrians, who, in turn, passed it on to the Babylonians. And we credit the Babylonians with introducing opium to the ancient Egyptians. An Egyptian medical text dated to the 16th century BCE recommended opium as a sedative for crying babies. That would be contemporary with the Xia Dynasty. And right around the same time when oracle bones started to be used in the Shang Dynasty, trading vessels from Phoenicia and Crete brought this Egyptian opium to Greece, Carthage, and Europe. Hippocrates was a well-known proponent of opium and wrote about its uses as a general panacea. Hippocrates lived contemporary with the spring and autumn period in China, the Eastern Zhou Same general time period as Confucius. A couple centuries later, in 330 BCE, when Alexander the Great was on a roll, he brought the secrets of opium to the places where his armies marched, in Persia and India. Accounts vary according to whom you hear it from, but the earliest evidence of opium use in China would be in 400 AD. Arab traders brought Egyptian opium to China for the first time. This is late in the Eastern Jin. The Nanfang Cao Muzhuang, credited to Western Jin scholar Ji Han, was an early work from 304 CE on plants and trees, and it mentions opium, or what they believe is opium. It had a lot of code names, so they were never completely sure. It was referred to in many texts as Afurong, Rong, and Hefurong, Pharmacopias compiled during the Jin, Yuan, and Ming all mention opium and its uses. Most sources say, and it's traditionally accepted, that it was brought to China first during the early years of the Tang Dynasty. Arab traders carried it in their cargo holds that sailed from the Arabian Gulf to Fujian province, among many other places. They called it Afyun, and from that it is believed. The Chinese word Ya comes from. That's what opium is most commonly called in Mandarin. The old book of Tang, the Jiu Tang Shu, mentions opium as a tribute item sent from the kingdom of Byzantium in 667. It also mentions that the kingdom of Tokara also presented opium as tribute to the Tang Emperor. This is in 729. Tohara was one of many once great Central Asian nations, like the Sogdians, they were famous traders and were located in what is present-day northern Afghanistan, southern Uzbekistan. Opium is also mentioned in Chen Cang Chi's Shi Yi, the supplement to the Materia Medica, a handy and practical guide in its day for clinical analysis and pharmacology. Opium is mentioned in this work from 741 at the time of the Tang Shenzong Emperor. The Arabs traded opium throughout the world as they knew it. Europe, North Africa, Persia, India, and Southwest China. They spread it around wherever they went. The first mention of poppy milk, the stuff that oozes out of the slits made to the seed pod and dries to a kind of latex-like substance, came in the southern Song. This showed that by at least the 15th century, the Chinese already had the lay of the land as far as how to harvest the tears of the poppy. In the Song, it was referred to as Ying Su, which translates to poppy. I read that the same process used today in the poppy fields of the Golden Triangle and Golden Crescent have been used since ancient times. The northern Song dynasty immortal Su Dongpo, a.k.a. Su Shi, wrote about opium and was known to partake of it from time to time. By as early as the 10th century, opium's medicinal value had been well recognized. Exactly what kind of medicine was it? What did these Materia Medicas say about it? It turned out if you suffered from the effects of dysentery or other kinds of gastro problems, opium took care of your diarrhea. Ingesting opium cleared bronchial congestion and all manners of tropical fevers. As a general analgesic and a substance to reduce stress, and promote relaxation, it knew no peer. It suppressed all your hunger pains, so there was never any urge to nourish your body. That's why it became such a close friend and ally of poor workers who engaged in the toughest and most laborious jobs. Opium gave those hungry workers who had no hope some sense of solace and a reason to keep going on. Inside that dried goo that seeped out of the poppy seed were more than four dozen alkaloids, three of which, morphine, nascopine, and codeine, gave this plant its uniqueness as an analgesic in this world. These alkaloids caused a kaleidoscope of sensations, some working on the nervous system, some the muscles, some the organs, the brain... First came the Arabs, who made opium a globally traded commodity. They were followed by the Venetians, who also did a brisk business in trading opium and spreading it around. Of course, everyone embraced it wherever it was introduced. 1497-1499 were the years that changed the world forever. That was the period when Vasco da Gama made his historic voyage from Lisbon to India via the Cape of Good Hope. And we have the Portuguese to thank for working in concert with the Indian Mughal emperor to crank up the opium trading business in that part of the world. By the time Macau, as we know it today, came into being in 1557, it became, among many other things, a base for Portuguese opium trading. The Portuguese had also figured it out on their own that smoking the opium itself using a pipe got you high right quick. The Chinese who first observed this act found it rather barbaric. Vasco da Gama came six decades after Zheng He made his seven voyages. The Ming Dynasty was still operating when the Portuguese were given Macau, but the dynasty was in its final century of existence. It was in the Ming Dynasty that everything changed as far as opium was concerned. Why is that, you might ask? It was because during this period, they learned how to smoke it. They had been eating it raw up till now. Eating, drinking, but not smoking it. No one had figured that out yet. Smoking opium is a much more efficient delivery system and gets you as high as a kite. You're able to soak in a much higher percentage of those morphine alkaloids. Once people figured that out, opium's history took a radical left turn. That's when the mass addiction problem began to take root. By this time in history, opium's applications were not only limited to a medicine and a recreational drug, it was also known amongst all the southern-educated elites of China to be a reliable and effective aphrodisiac. A man named Xu Bo Ling went down in history as the author of a piece written in 1483, the Southern Song, that mentioned opium and it was important enough to be included in the Siku Shu, the complete library of the four treasures. The Chen si Shu had been mentioned before in previous episodes, the Qianlong Emperor was going to teach the Ming Yongle Emperor in his massive Yongle Encyclopedia, who was boss. His answer to that was the Siku Quanshu, 800 million characters long. Xu Baoling wrote, quote, Abroad, various countries and also the western regions produce a medicine called Afyun, or Hefurong. In China, it is called Pian. It looks like myrrh and is dark yellow. It is tough and pliable like ox glue and smells like a horse. It is bitter, hot, and poisonous. Its main role is to assist male sexual performance and strengthen the sperm and vital force. It is much used by doctors and courtesans who practice the arts of the bedchamber. In 1483, an order was given for senior palace eunuchs to go to Hainan, Fujian, Zhejiang, Sichuan, Shanxi, and the closer part of the western regions to purchase it. The price was as expensive as gold, quote. Xie Zhao who lived in late 16th, early 17th century Ming Dynasty China, was a prolific writer of books and had this to say about opium, quote, Afurong is a barbarian product. It is made by mixing opium poppy juice with the root of the three-nerved spice bush. The best quality is called Ya Its price is the same as gold. It can cure diarrhea and get rid of wind and parasites. It can also strengthen the male organ without causing ejaculation. It is much used in the arts of the bedchamber. It is also very poisonous. Those people of Yunnan who take it frequently die a bad death. Quote. So in 1483, the time of the Ming Chenghua Emperor, we know that at least by that early age, the use of opium as a yao or aphrodisiac, was already established. So just about the midway point of the Ming Dynasty, that's when the history of opium in China begins to take on a form that did more than cure your diarrhea, dull your pain, and ameliorate your tropical fevers. The great herbologist and acupuncturist Li Jun's Compendium of Materia Medica, the Bencao Gangmu, that came out in 1590, reaffirmed among its 1,892 entries, opium's usage as an aphrodisiac. Once smoking came into fashion in the Ming Dynasty, it spawned an entire opium culture with ceremonies, etiquette, and rituals no less intricate and stylized than when one made tea for a guest. Peter Lee, whose book, Opium Culture, The Art and Ritual of the Chinese Tradition, said, quote, the Chinese did not discover opium, but they refined its recreational use into an art and craft of unparalleled sophistication. End quote. He also wrote quote, The smell of opium, smoked the Chinese way, is one of the most unforgettable aromas on earth. Like the smell of gunpowder and the smell of sex, the smell of opium identifies itself boldly with a single whiff, instantly and unmistakably, in the nostrils of anyone who has ever experienced it, even if only once. So distinctive is the smell of opium that it defies description in words or comparison with other aromas. Both bitter and sweet, pungent and musky, sharp yet soft, fragrant but musty, opium has a rich bouquet that turns the head and commands the immediate attention of anyone who smells it. End quote. The 16th century was when the tobacco pipe was introduced to China by Dutch traders. The tobacco pipe took China by storm. After the Dutch muscled in on the Portuguese in the late 16th century, they set up their little spice and opium empire on the Indonesian island of Java. From there, they traded all over Southeast Asia and China as well. A trading post was set up on the southern tip of Taiwan, Tainan. The Dutch were hot for Taiwanese camphor wood, and they traded it for opium grown in Java. The Dutch taught the Taiwanese a cool way to get the ultimate buzz. In Java the locals there learned to mix dried tobacco with a bit of opium. And this opium-laced tobacco was called madak. The Dutch, no surprise, figured out this stuff had all kinds of potential, and they brought this madak to Taiwan. The Chinese called it madak. The Indians were growing and trading in opium long before Vasco da Gama arrived, and it got spread around Southeast Asia somewhat. For some reason, it particularly caught on in Java, and they developed their own market They were the ones who get credit for coming up with the idea of Madak. Whether Taiwanese traders were the first to bring it to Fujian in Guangdong, or whether it was Fujian soldiers who saw it first in Taiwan before you could say wacky tabacky, a great number of people all over southern China went and got themselves hooked on the stuff. Madak was highly addictive. Not that I have ever tried smoking madak before, but it seems like a rather easy and convenient way to get plastered. The way it worked, once you stumbled upon an easy and convenient delivery system, addiction became inevitable. When it was costly and not so easy to get, and you had to jump through some hoops to take it, addiction wasn't so common. But once smoking madak was introduced mid to late Ming Dynasty, that was the missing link between opium the medicine and opium, the addictive recreational narcotic drug. Same happened with tobacco when pre-rolled cigarettes came out in 1845. Once it became so convenient, people would light up more often. So we can already see, even before the Ming Chongzhen Emperor went and hung himself from a tree on Coal Hill in Jingshan Park, and the Manchus blew into Beijing, a culture of opium was already long established in China. As I mentioned, it had been a tribute item since at least the Tang Dynasty. Documents from as late as 1587 named opium as a tribute gift from Java, Siam, and Bengal. Do you all remember the uh, Wanli Emperor? He's remembered for a number of reasons that we mentioned before here at the Royal China History Podcast, he reigned for an incredibly long time, 48 years, 1572 to 1620. He's the one who sometime around 1600 decided to stop performing his duties as emperor, and it's rumored that he spent the last 20 years of his reign in an opium-induced stupor. He also gets a Mentioned because back in 1956, his tomb, one of the Shirsan Ling, the 13 Ming tombs just north of Beijing, was the only one to be excavated with somewhat disastrous results. This was Ding Ling. And his skeleton was denounced at a Red Guard rally during the Cultural Revolution. That guy. That all he did was sit around with his beloved Lady Jung and partake of opium is not proven. Historians are pretty sure Madak came to the southwest coast of China just after Wanli met his demise. Opium's use in his day was still mainly medicinal. But tests done on the Wanli Emperor's skeletal remains showed that he most definitely enjoyed his morphine. Someone had written of the Wanli Emperor's long disappearance from active duty, quote, he had become a prisoner of the poison of the black perfume, end quote. For the remainder of the 1600s in China, as the Ming fell and the Qing began their best years, opium use in China became more widespread. Because global trade had come into its own during this period, it was more readily available. The Portuguese were seeing to that. They still had their base in Goa, and from there they shipped opium to their base in China, located in Macau. And they weren't the only ones by the 1700s opium made its way to China and Southeast Asia via Dutch ships as well. With all the domestic and imported supply fueling the market, it was only natural that for the first time a serious addiction problem was evident. When opium was like tea used to be, something exotic that only royalty or aristocrats could afford, it never became a social problem. As opium transitioned from exotic substance to a full-fledged global commodity... The new dynamic opened the door to the subsequent drug addiction problem. And with this drug problem came Qing Dynasty China's first shot in the war on drugs. When China began carrying out the first of many ill-fated wars on drugs, that's when opium's history starts to become more familiar to us. In 1729 came the first of several edicts that tried to tackle the problem head-on. All these years, going back to the Tongue, opium imports had been legal. The first edict came from the son of the Kangxi Emperor, the hard-working Yongzheng Emperor. In that year, 1729, after the Madak problem started to show signs of becoming noticeably out of control, the emperor declared no smoking of Madak allowed. Seventy years later, when the semi-retired Qianlong Emperor was in his final year of life, the 1729 edict was given a total makeover by his successor, the Jiaqing Emperor, And the import of opium was also strictly forbidden. Now, whether this was to protect domestic interests or a sincere effort to stamp out this blight in society, I can't say. At that time, the total imports of opium into China was no more than 300 metric tons. If they only knew that this alarming figure was only 5% of what would be pouring into China at the peak of opium imports in 1880. You see, from Yongzheng in 1729 all the way to the poor old Daoguang Emperor, no matter how hard they tried to institute all these acts of prohibition against local Chinese and against foreign exporters of opium to China, it was all for naught. The way things were back then, with knowledge and technologies that led to this explosion of global trade, nothing was going to be allowed to get in the way of unfettered access to world markets. With China's market size and potential market size being as big as it was, it was just too big a morsel for exporters and importers alike to pass on. Too much money was at stake. And what mattered more than that? The prohibitions worked here and there, but like many a war on drugs, it never got rid of the supply or the demand. After the EIC took control of Bengal and Bihar in 1750, and especially after 1793 when the company established their monopoly on the Indian opium trade, everything had to go through them. Opium exports out of India and the direction of China increased year on year, rarely with any disruption. 1813 saw the introduction of another imperial edict, this one for the first time banning all consumption of opium. The British EIC, through their network of independent country traders, nonetheless was still shipping Indian opium to China. There's nothing like a big drop in opium prices to give the market a sudden jolt. That's what happened in the 1820s when cheap Malwa opium poured into China. Malwa product wasn't the good stuff. The connoisseurs and those who could afford it demanded Patna opium from Bengal that the EIC dealt in. Malwa wasn't as good and had a lower morphine content, and it wasn't even grown or processed by the EIC. But beggars can't be choosers, and the cheap stuff still sold like hotcakes. With all this inferior but nonetheless competing product, the EIC took measures to take control of the market by increasing their patna supply and buying up all the chests of Malwa they could find. Patna in Mandarin was referred to as datu, Da means big, tu means a soil. Malwa was called Tu or little soil. It was also called gongtu, or common soil. 26 years after the 1813 edict came a more serious and comprehensive anti-drug law. This one, enacted in 1839, was the most serious one to date. When it came out, there were around 12 million opium addicts in China. Even if the root cause of these imperial prohibitions was to protect domestic revenue, addiction was most definitely a problem. The number of chests pouring into China, despite all the government bans, was only a few thousand in the early 19th century. I mentioned how much was in a chest, the standard unit of packing in the trade. Each chest contained 133 pounds, or 60 kilos, of raw opium. In the 1820s, after Malwa opium started showing up in the market, the number of chests imported into China began to close in on 20,000. If you had to point a finger at a time when China began to lose control of the opium problem, 1820s, 1830s was when it happened. By then, no one paid any heed to what the government said. These import figures would double by the time of the opium war. And after Parliament took the EIC's monopoly of Far East trade away, all these merchants waiting on the sidelines dived into the China opium business. Same with tea as well. 1839, we all know, was a banner year in the history of opium. Linzi Xu had arrived in Canton in March of that year and started banging heads right away. And in June of 1839, that's when this great hero of China started burning all the opium outside of the town of Humen. Five months later, in November, fighting broke out that signaled the start of hostilities in the first opium war. As I said, I'm not going to get into the details of the opium war. We all know what happened. But let me get out my well-used copy of Endymion Wilkinson's uh, China History, a new manual, and show how bad the problem was in China relative to the U.S. and U.K., I haven't said anything about this, but opium in the 19th and early 20th centuries was not just popular in China. Others consumed it, too. There's this stuff called laudanum. That was the valium of its day. It was a tincture of opium. A tincture is an alcoholic extract of some substance. The opium is dissolved in alcohol to about a 1% morphine amount and taken orally. A lot of people got hooked on this stuff in England and America. It was used as a pain reliever, as a relaxant, and as a cough suppressant. In the UK, opium imports peaked in the 1870s, where it was used mostly as a cure-all potion. Professor Wilkinson said that 8.8 pounds of opium annually per 1,000 persons was the highest level reached there uh, in imports. Using my trusty calculator, I found that came to about 4 grams per person. In the USA, opium imports peaked in the 1850s, before the Civil War. Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, thereabouts. The amount imported was slightly less than in Britain. It reached 6.6 pounds per 1,000 people, or 3 grams per person. The Yanks and the Brits got high off Turkish opium, courtesy of the Ottoman Empire. In China, however, when the opium trade peaked there in the 1880s, the import figures were as high as 25 pounds per 1,000 people, or 11.33 grams per person, almost three times the amount of Britain. And it was said that China's domestic growers produced as much product as was imported. So in a way, you can double the figures for China, almost 23 grams per person versus 3 to 4 grams. Domestic Chinese opium production could... Hardly feed the demand, so that left the door open to the EIC and traders of all great nations, not to mention smugglers, to shore up the supply. By the 1880s, as many as 100,000 chests of Indian opium found its way to the China market. 5% of the country's populace was hooked, and it kept getting worse into the 20th century, reaching 15% of the population, or about 80 million smokers and addicts. Not everyone who smoked was an addict. This illustrates the extent of the opium problem in China. And though I found Professor Mark Kleiman's main point valid, there's nothing like a nice, efficient supply to fuel a growing demand. The Western traders selling chests of opium to China weren't the cause of China's problem, but they certainly played a co-starring role. Zhang Changjia wrote a book in 1878 called Opium Talk, Yen Hua. This was China's version of Thomas De Quincey's 1821 work, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. With style and literary grace, De Quincey laid it all out for readers of the day. Everything you wanted to know about the pleasures and pains of opium that you were afraid to ask. It was a big sensation in its day. Zhang Changjia's book was similar in that it gave a straight-up narrative about opium use in China from someone who used it himself. Keith McMahon, a professor of Chinese language and literature at the University of Kansas, is a renowned specialist in the field of 16th to 19th century literature in China and quite knowledgeable about the history of eroticism and opium culture in China. In his work from 15 years ago entitled Opium and Sexuality in Late Qing Fiction, he talks about Zhang Changjia's book and the concept of the wastrel man who goes and takes his life and throws it all away in order to enjoy the pleasures of opium. This wastrel became somewhat of a staple in later Chinese literature, and he made more than a few appearances in Chinese cinema. Keith McMahon, among many of the brilliant things he wrote, said of this wastrel opium addict who lost everything for the sake of his next pipe, quote, "...by the end of the Qing, this wastrel, who could be seen everywhere in real form, had also turned into a symbol, both in the eyes of foreigners and Chinese themselves. He became a central figure." Of the failure and decline of China as a whole. End quote. Not everyone was a wastrel, and not every wastrel was a man. Men far outnumbered women when it came to opium usage and addiction. Remember Puyi's wife in the 1987 film The Last Emperor? The character Empress Wan Rong, played so well by Joan Chen, Chen Chong. Uh, women from royalty down to the most down and out prostitute embraced opium as well. Keith McMahon wrote of this. quote, Although there were fewer female smokers than male, the image of the female addict was more ominous and disturbing, and that the woman as addict suggested a more profound disruption of social order. The typical arc of the wastrel opium user was described this way by Zhang Chang Jia, and again I'm quoting Professor McMahon. the young man at first smoked opium to enhance his pleasure and fortitude with prostitutes, but eventually the smoker no longer cared for prostitutes and simply wanted to withdraw to a chamber of his own where he could spend hours smoking, being high, and sleeping, quote. The opium addiction problem in China in the late 19th and early 20th century was profound any way you look at it. I'm going to... Leave a link to Keith McMahon's website, and anyone interested to check him out can find him. He has quite a body of work. In the course of my reading, I stumbled upon something interesting. In uh, Peter Lee's book, Opium Culture, you ever wonder where we get the word hip? Peter Lee wrote, quote, During the 1920s and 30s, the big smoke, meaning opium, penetrated America's avant-garde art and music underworld, where opium-smoking jazz musicians and blues singers coined the slang term hip, from which the word hipster and hippie were later derived. Based on the position one adopts when smoking opium the Chinese way, lying down on one's hip, hence the quip, Are you hip? Hey, who knew? After the opium war, the problem in China went from bad to worse, and it kept on growing. Remember Du Yue Sheng, Big Ears Du, the undisputed boss of the Green Gang in Shanghai, the one who gave us the Shanghai Massacre? He was known as the opium king for a while since... All trade in the drug went through his syndicate, at least for a while. When the Japanese invaded China in the 1930s, they took one look at the market and said this would be a slam dunk as far as making money went. So the Japanese army got into the opium business and made a ton of money. This was opium's last hurrah in China, the period of Japanese occupation. After nearly a hundred-year free-for-all in the opium trade, the communists came to power in 1949, and by 1956, they had pretty much stamped out the opium problem in China. A very successful campaign was carried out by the party that persuaded farmers to plant other crops beside poppies. Addicts were treated, and recalcitrant dealers were either killed or imprisoned. The Golden Triangle, which Yunnan province borders, is still to this day a major source of opiates. As I mentioned, not everyone who smoked opium was a senseless addict. The culture of opium smoking had become so normal and accepted inside Chinese society, particularly among the upper classes. Opium dens existed that were frequented by addicts. Many of these were very high-end Pian guan, or yen guan, that were to opium what fancy tea houses were to tea. Men would go there to socialize, engage in business, some engaged in prostitution as well. Opium being a well-known and accepted aphrodisiac since the time of the Song was always available for this purpose. The courtesans who worked in these fine establishments were always well-trained in how to prepare opium for smoking. Like with tea, when friends or business acquaintances came to call on you at your residence, it was not uncommon for the host to offer up a pipe for his guests a little yin chou, as it was called. And just as with Gongfu cha, the host would show respect by preparing the pipe himself, rather than use a servant. There are all kinds of social customs in China where the opium pipe showed up. After Vasco da Gama's milestone voyage in the late 1490s, and after the idea of global trade and commodities became commonplace, it lifted opium up to a whole new level. The argument about who is more to blame, the Western imperialist powers, or the Chinese themselves, will probably go on forever. Right here in the U.S., we've had the same old argument. Is the problem caused by the demand for drugs, or by these gangs and cartels who are supplying it? Like tea that we discussed in ten parts previously, opium was a gift from nature enjoyed by the Chinese. There's no Shandong story associated with opium in China. Opium wasn't discovered there, it was brought there by those who had it first. Those guys taught Chinese farmers how to grow it, and this started the whole China domestic growers market that I said at the outset. Mark Kleiman professors were being protected by all these imperial edicts uh, against the import of competitive foreign opium. Both tea and opium sort of came of age in the Tang dynasty, though opium lacked a luyu to allow it to become more mainstream, and maybe that was a good thing. Opium, for many centuries, enjoyed a nice, respectable existence, prescribed as an effective remedy for many common illnesses of the day. During the Ming Dynasty, opium became the go-to aphrodisiac, and this use, certainly in the upper classes, rivaled its original usage as a medicine. For opium, Pandora's box was open when everyone figured out the whole smoking thing. That was the old proverbial game-changer. All the horrible addiction in China that became so commonplace all came about because of this new knowledge acquired during the Ming Dynasty. First it was Madak, and later on, after various prohibitions against smoking tobacco and new ways to smoke pure opium on its own were discovered, the problem spread. The upper classes smoked the best Patna opium that money could buy, and the poorest smoked the cheaper stuff, or often what was known as dross. Dross was the opium left over from a previous smoke. Smoking dross was like smoking a discarded cigarette butt to get that one last puff of nicotine, or scraping your pipe to get one last hit. Anyway, that's it for this topic. If you're interested, there's plenty more you can read on opium culture, literature, and history. There's a lot more about the history of opium in China than the thin gruel I presented to you today. I just wanted to show how there was more to it than the opium war. The opium culture of pre-liberation nationalist China is filled with all kinds of fascinating stories. It's there if you want to learn more about it. Sorry for leaving that all out in this truncated episode. I get email from many listeners asking me where is a good place to start learning Mandarin or what books offered halfway decent supplementary info to those just starting out. If you're stumbling around in the dark trying to learn mandarin on your own you might want to check out the chinese skill free app in the itunes and google app stores i must say not bad if you're currently at an elementary level and want a nice tool to help make sense of everything and show you how to pronounce things correctly take a look at chinese skill one word i have other mandarin learning aids and websites that i'll share with you from time to time i wish i had this stuff when i was learning mandarin didn't even have the internet No personal computers, either. And so, from the shores of Lake Ontario, here in the wonderful nation of Canada, birthplace of Mark Rosewell, my patron saint, this is Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from the Renaissance Hotel here in downtown Toronto. I finally made it to Canada after more than half a century. Why did it take me this long? Great place. Can't wait to see the rest. Take care, everyone. Stay away from opiates. We'll see you next time, I hope, for another intoxicating episode of the China History Podcast.